deserted him. And then Jesus, you find, is actually in Galilee, and he's in Galilee because the Jewish leaders want to kill him. So his brothers come up with a plan. This is a marketing strategy. Listen, you've lost a lot of people. Let's go to the Festival of Tabernacles. Everybody's going to be there. Just come, show yourself, do some miracles, and they'll flock back. And Jesus tells them, no, I'm not going. It's not my time. You can go. World doesn't hate you. World hates me. I'm not going. You go. And so his brothers leave, and they go. And then it says, after they leave, Jesus then goes in secret to the festival. He tells his brothers, I'm not going, and then he goes. Now, that can seem really inconsistent, but actually it shows something of the consistency of Jesus. Uh, I would say there are two pieces in this. One is that it's actually pretty clear, right, that Jesus will only do what he hears the Father telling him to do. And it seems clear that actually the Father hadn't told him to go to the festival, and so he wasn't going. And then the Father told him to go, and he went. But even on another level... Jesus was not going to go in the way and for the purpose that his brothers wanted him to go. He was not about um, regaining a following. That was not the purpose of, of why he was going and what he was doing. So you find then that, that this was a week-long festival, and about halfway through, Jesus then reveals himself in the sense that he begins teaching. And his teaching stirs people up so that the chief priests and the Pharisees, they're, they're agitated, and they, they tell the temple guards, go and arrest this man. Now, what's interesting, if you, if you actually see this, if you catch it, in verse 45, it says, finally, the temple guards come back, which is like three or four days after they were sent to arrest Jesus. And they said, we've never heard a man speak like this. So if you look at the Festival of Tabernacles, it was a joyful celebration. It was a, a, a festival that was about thanksgiving. And there was a thanksgiving for how God had provided. There's a thanksgiving for how he is currently providing. And a thanksgiving for how he will provide. So it is rooted in, in God's provision for his people and their wilderness wanderings. Right? They left Egypt. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years before they entered the promised land. And God miraculously provided for them as they were in tents, right, in tabernacles. And so there's this remembrance and giving thanks for God's faithful provision in the past. The harvest would have just come in. And so there was also this giving thanks for God's current provision, how he cared for them. But actually woven in was this hope for, this expectation of God's future provision. The sense that just as the Israelites were on pilgrimage out of Egypt into the promised land, we are on pilgrimage. They might have thought out of Rome, out of oppression. We are on pilgrimage heading into the messianic kingdom where, where all things will be restored. And so what you find in the mornings in this festival, there is something that they did to speak to that future hope. And so every morning, the priest would process and they'd go to the pool of Siloam and they would, they would scoop water out and they'd, they'd process back to the temple. They would then march around the, the um, altar of sacrifice once, pour the water out as the morning sacrifice was being made. And certainly, you can say it echoes things like Isaiah in chapter 12 and verse 3. It says, therefore, you shall draw water from the wells of salvation. But even more, what they were picking up on was the vision in Ezekiel 47, the vision of the messianic kingdom when all things are restored. And in that vision, there is a stream that flows out of the temple. 
And it begins as a trickle in the temple. And as that stream goes forward, it gets wider and deeper. And it eventually goes all the way to the Dead Sea where it turns the water fresh. And in that picture, uh, that vision in Ezekiel, uh, the, the river is lined with trees that produce fruit every month of the year. It's this picture, this glorious picture of restoration and of life. It's a picture that, that actually draws back to the image of, of, of Eden, of, of the garden. And so you find um, in this festival, it says on the last and greatest day, so on the very last day of the festival, what, the, what they would do is they would get the water from the pool, they'd come back, they would actually march around the, uh, the altar seven times and pour the water out. And it was clear, like, this, maybe this is the water that's going to start that restoration, that, that will be a mark of the messianic kingdom. And, and it, was a, it was a joyful, raucous event. Now, when we think of a, a religious um, service that's a week long, you're like, good Lord, I don't know if I could do that. But this was like a, more like a party. Right? It was a celebration. So you can think, they've been celebrating all week. And actually, it looks like they probably were celebrating all night. And, and this pouring out of the water on this last day of the festival was marked with great joy. In fact, one of the ancient rabbis said, if you've never seen this water poured out on this day, you've never seen joy. And this is when Jesus shouts out, if he said, you know, he said in a loud voice, that's a very tame translation. It literally, he shouted out because there was so much joy and celebration. He'd have to shout out in order to be heard. And in that, then Jesus is shouting out that he is the fulfillment of all that they are celebrating. And he is the fulfillment of all they are longing for. So at that moment of great joy, Jesus shouts out, let anyone who is thirsty come to me. And drink whoever believes in me. As a scripture has said, streams or rivers of living water will flow from within him. Jesus is claiming to be the source of living water. Uh, living water, water that brings life, that brings that life to the full. Now, living in a dry climate, as, as I do, um, you, you understand even more deeply the need of water to survive. And my doctor has talked to me a couple of times about the, the need to um, be diligent in hydration. Because he told me that if you are doing work and you find yourself getting thirsty, that means you've already gone without water too long. Thirst reveals a deficit, right? There's a deficit of water. And so the reality is we have lived with a thirst and with a deficit ever since our rebellion in Genesis chapter 3. But before our rebellion in Genesis 3, uh, we were not thirsty because we were connected to the source of life, to life in the full. But from that point of rebellion forward, we are actually born with a thirst. We are born with a deficit because we are separated from God. So this deficit that we are born with, it has a lot of layers. There is a deficit of relationship and therefore a deficit of identity. Because uh, we think our identity is actually something that we can create, that we can um, 
by our work, we can create sort of a sense of our identity and worth. But the reality is identity is not something we create. It is always something that is bestowed upon us. It is given. Our identity is actually given to us by the Father. And so what you find is that we were made in his image, which means we were meant to be his glory and his presence in creation. That spoke to our identity. That spoke to our worth, our value. And yet when we rebelled, that image of God we were created in becomes corrupted by our rebellion. And it's now marred by sin. That's why the scripture speaks about us being born in the image of Adam, which is the image of God that's been corrupted by sin. Right? So it's not erased, it's not gone, but it is tainted, it's corrupted by sin. But even on a deeper level, we are born not knowing who we are, we've lost who we are because we are born separated from the Father, and the Father is the one who actually gives us our identity and our worth. It is something that he speaks into us. So we're, we're born with a deficit of relationship and a deficit of identity. We are born with a deficit of righteousness. Do you know why we feel guilty? Because we are, right? That's why we feel guilty. There's a deficit of righteousness. And so we feel guilt because we are guilty, which means that we are born with a deficit of glory. We are instead marked by shame. And in that, we do everything we can. We, do, we battle to try to cover up that shame, to try to regain some of that lost glory. And whatever we do, it's never enough and it never lasts. Which means we also then wrestle with futility and inadequacy. We are actually born with a deficit of purpose. Now we have all kinds of purpose that we have, right? So I'm not saying we have no purpose, but our purpose is twisted in on itself in ways that are unhealthy. It's not a life-giving purpose. It's not a purpose of living out who God has made us to be. We are born with a deficit of love, of receiving love, uh, simply, uh, simply and unconditionally love. Not because we've earned it, not because of, of who we are in, in somebody's life, how we have a, a place and therefore they love us, but simple, unconditional love. We are born with a deficit of love in receiving and actually in giving. Because that, that part of the image of God that we are made in, there's a part of us that actually we want to pour that unconditional love out on those we love. But you can ask them. We fail at that every time, right? Condition always tends to come in in some way. So we are born with a deficit of love, both receiving and in pouring it out. And in that deficit, everything gets twisted. So in the beginning, we see that out of our identity, who we were meant to be as God's glory and, and, and presence in creation, we were given the role of ruling and subduing. Not each other, Right? the rest of the created order. But as things get twisted out of place by our rebellion, we are so intent on trying to regain what was lost. We are so intent to try to establish our own glory. We are so bent on trying to cover our own shame that we actually use rule and subdue over each other, which it was never meant to be, in order to try to, to fill what is empty, in order to try to meet those places in us that are hungry and thirsty. See, our lives are marked by a deficit. That's why we thirst, 
and the world, the flesh, and the devil, they play on that thirst. Now, yes, it certainly is that they play on it by, by tempting us with things. This will satisfy you, right? And it never does, right? It never fully satisfies, or it might seem to, but it never does. But there's a, a deeper way that they do this. Right? The world, the flesh, and the devil love to whisper in our ears futility. Love to whisper into our ears that we are worthless, that we are not loved, that we are failures. And those whispers find a place in our hearts because they might echo our deepest fears or they might actually echo what somebody in our life who had some place in our life actually spoke words that, that, that bore that message. In one sense, spoken a curse over us. And so we, we, we hear these whispers of, of being unloved, whispers of futility, whispers of, of um, not being good enough or maybe being too much. And so we do everything we can to battle against that. We try to overcome that. We, we do what we can in order to receive and earn some sense of affirmation or worth to prove ourselves, or we just give in to it. We think this is what's true about me. But in either case, the message in these, in these lies from the enemy are clear. You are on your own. It is actually up to you to fill this thirst, to fix what is empty. And so we do all that we can to try to fill this emptiness, to try to meet this thirst, or at least to distract ourselves from it, even if it is just a little while. And then that our relationships get, um, get sideways, they get twisted sideways, so that our relationships, we can then begin to rely on the people in our lives to help us feel good about who we are. That, that we draw from somebody else, it could be our children, our spouse, our parents, we, we, we know that our worth comes because they say I have worth. Right? We place on them something they can actually never fill. Our work, which is not, work is actually a good thing in scripture, right? Our work gets twisted sideways because instead of being an expression of the glory of God in us and through us, we use our work to somehow try to recover what was lost, right? To try to give ourselves a purpose, um, to recover lost glory by what we accomplish or by what we accumulate. And, and that maybe even the deeper thing is that when we live lives that are marked by deficit, there is actually a gravitational pull towards self-absorption and self-protection. Right? We build walls to protect what this fragile sense of identity and worth that we have. And, and then we become consumed by by our needs or our desires. We become consumed by our hurts or our emptiness, by our worth, by our fears or our hopes. And that place of being consumed, that self-absorption and that building walls, it actually just brings a deep weariness to our souls. Does anybody else know this? Do you know what I'm talking about? This is actually what the Lord is speaking about in Jeremiah. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, 
and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So instead of drinking the source of living water from the Lord, what he's saying is we dig our own cisterns. Cisterns are just, think of it as a storage tank that's, that's dug out into the ground. That we dig our own cisterns and pour, try to pour water into it, and it actually it doesn't work because the cisterns leak. Right? So it doesn't matter how much we pour into them, we cannot, it will not be enough because they leak. The more you pour in, the more they seem to flow out. And so in one sense, what you find is that they're not actually cisterns, they're sieves. Right? It doesn't matter how much you pour in, it's always leaking out. But there's even a deeper understanding of this. This picture of broken cisterns in Jeremiah 2 it actually is speaking to the idols that the Israelites were chasing. And idolatry and living water are actually incompatible. So we're saying whatever you are using in this idolatry, whatever you are trying to pour this water in to try to make it be the source of life, it cannot be living water because idolatry and living water are incompatible. So we might look and say, you know, I don't have any statues in my house that I bow down to, so I don't have to worry about idolatry. But actually the idolatry we deal with is much more insidious because it's not as obvious. And maybe even more so, it's insidious because it can actually be good things, actually be God-given things things that God gives to us in order for us to enjoy and delight and know his goodness, but things that were never meant to be the source of life. They were never meant to be the source of our, our identity or our worth. So, so it can be um, relationships. We can make an idol of our relationships. We can make an idol of family. It can be work. It can be affirmation. It can be our resources. It can be our own goodness. It can be our abilities or our accomplishments. What is it that we depend on for life? Because what we depend on will be what we obey. What we depend on will always be what we obey. So if we depend on affirmation from others uh, for life, that is what we will obey. If we depend on our resources, if we depend on our uh, abilities, our accomplishments, that is what we will obey. That is what will shape the direction of our lives. Those are the broken cisterns that do not hold water. And we can never pour in enough. It doesn't matter what those things are. They could be good things. They'd be things that God has given us. We can never pour in enough, no matter how much we try. And that trying again and again, we keep pouring in. We keep on trying to make this thing or this person, this reality, the source of life. It is never enough. And we become so weary because they're broken cisterns, Right? If we try to make them the source of life, we find that actually it is incompatible with living water. They cannot be the source of living water. So living water, um, water that brings life. This is not existence. We know how to exist. Right? We know how to survive. But that is not life. When you talk about life, this life to the full, it has to do with beauty and goodness and delight. 
It has to do with generosity. It has to do with abundance. It has to do with joy. It has to do with God's blessing and God's favor. It has to do with hope. Jesus says that he is the source, right, of this life. And he speaks of it often of, of, of eternal life. And not eternal existence, right? Because eternal existence sounds pretty bad. But eternal life, right? This beauty, this goodness, this joy, this delight. But, but eternal is not just about duration, that it just goes on without end. Eternal life means this is life that cannot be taken away. So anything that you depend on to be the source of life that can be taken away or lost is not actually the source of life. Eternal life, this is a life that cannot be taken away because life that he is talking about is not up to us to create. It's not something that we can generate. It is a gift that we receive. It does not depend on our efforts. It depends on Jesus and his work on the cross applied into our lives by God the Holy Spirit. This is why in John, it says that when he's speaking about this, he's talking about the Spirit because it is the Holy Spirit that applies the work of the cross into our lives, making us new creations. This is his grace upon grace, freely given. This is actually what we see in 1 John chapter 3, the scriptures we heard. In verse 1, it says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. What great love the Father has lavished on us. We were talking about this yesterday in the confirmation class, right? God is love and God is holy, which means his love is holy. His love is other. It's not like human love. His love is not tainted by sin, right? There is no neediness in his love. There is no, I need you to love me so I can feel good about myself, right? I love you, you love me so I can feel good about who I am. There is no sin, there is no neediness in his love. There is no selfishness. Human love is love of what is lovable, which is why we do what we can to be lovable because we don't want to be unloved, right? And that shapes so much of what we do. And it's actually what we battle because at our core, defined by sin and shame, we will battle feeling unlovable every day of our life. And we battle to do what we can do to be loved. God does not love us because we are lovable. He loves us because he is love. This is not something that you have to earn because you can't earn it. It's not based on us. It's actually based on what Jesus has done for us. And because it's not based on us being lovable, it means that, that it will never go away. God will never fall out of love with you. He is not fickle. It is not that he loves you more when you do good things or loves you less when you do bad things because his love is not de dependent on or contingent on, on our actions and what we do. It's dependent and contingent on Jesus and his work on the cross. Another way to say it is, you will never be more loved than you are right now. 
It's this love of God that is poured out on us fully and freely. And that love poured into us, it actually changes our identity. We move from being enemies of God to being children of God. We move from sin and shame and death and the dominion of darkness to righteousness and glory and life and the kingdom of God. And John says, this is actually what you are, a child of God. Not what you will be not what you might be, not what you could or should be if you try hard enough. If you have been rescued by Jesus, you have been made a child of God and you will never be more fully a child of God than you are right now. We grow in our experience of it, right? We grow in our understanding of it. But we are fully loved children of God the moment we are rescued. This is what is true. Right? The world can't see it. The devil will deny it. Our flesh will doubt it so that we don't believe it, so that we actually forget who we are and we live lives of striving. We go into trying to dig our own cisterns to try to, to be the source of life, which means we actually spend much of our time tentative and hiding and not being, as John says a few verses before, those who are confident and unashamed. So what you find at the heart of the gospel, you find that there is actually no place for feeling inferior if you are a child of God. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. There is, no, there is no place to feel less than anybody else. There is no place to say, I am sort of unimportant in God's schemes. There is no place for feeling inferior. Likewise, there's no place for feeling superior. Right? It's a gift of grace. We have this as a gift of his grace. I wish I had time to go into verse 2 of John chapter 3. But I want to just simply point out to you that it says that we become like Jesus and we become like him because we see him as he truly is. That is the work of the Holy Spirit, is always to take us to Jesus, always to bring us to the feet of Jesus, always to give us a clearer understanding and picture and seeing of Jesus. And the more that we see him, the more we become like him. In verse 3, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. It doesn't say all who has this hope in him um, should purify themselves. But if we have this hope in him, we actually do purify ourselves. In other words, God's love for us, the amazing work he does in making us children of God, is not our motivation for purifying ourselves. Like maybe some of you had this experience with your mom, like, you know what? I labored for 16 hours for you. You better do this thing for me, right? There's some, oh, we've done something for you. Now you do something for him. That's guilt and that's manipulation. Right? That is not the way that God is. It is not that, that we look at what he's done for us and somehow that is to motivate us to do good things for him. It's actually what he has done for us is the cause of how we purify ourselves. Right? Jesus is pure. And when we come to faith, we are united with Jesus, which means we become pure. Right? We are those that, that what he touches, he makes clean. We purify ourselves because we are actually living out who we are, who he has made us to be, what he has done for us. It, purifying yourself is not saying, okay, God's done this great thing for you. Now try to scrub the dirt off because you can't do it. Right? We don't have that ability. This is actually saying that, that we have been purified and now you need to live that out. 
Our struggles with holiness are often not primarily because we lack self-discipline or self-control. That can be an issue. I'm not saying that's not an issue. But often it actually is because we forget who we are. And when we forget who we are, and when we don't know who we are as children of God, we go into grasping, we go into self-protection, we go into striving, we begin digging our own cisterns, and our desires get twisted sideways because we're trying to establish or protect some sense of identity, some sense of worth. What you find here, actually, is that a holy life flows from a holy identity. Right? Jesus makes us holy, and a holy life flows from that. Not that we do it perfectly. We won't do it all the time. We are still going to sin, but those sins no longer own us, and those sins no longer define us. Can you just stop for a moment and imagine what your life would be if you truly and deeply knew who you were as a son or daughter of the King of Kings? What cisterns would you stop digging? What is it that you would realize, I am doing all of this, trying to find some sense of identity or worth. I'm, I'm expending myself, pouring water into this, and it keeps on um, leaking out. What would your life be if you truly and deeply knew who you were as a son or daughter of the King of Kings? It takes God, the Holy Spirit, to root this truth into us. Right? Because the world, the flesh, and the devil are always trying to give us a different identity. Not, what God, not who God says we are, but, but they're always trying to give us a different identity to try to push us into the activity of digging cisterns. And it doesn't work. This one leaks, so I'm going to try another one. And then another one. The enemy always wants us to forget who we are so that we're not a kingdom presence. So we don't live out who we are, uh, being his kingdom presence, participating in his ongoing work of restoration to bring prodigal sons and daughters home. Just like we were brought home by his grace. This is actually what we're doing in Confirmation. Confirmation, it's an ordination service. It is the apostolic laying on of hands for the empowering of God, the Holy Spirit, for the work of ministry, which means it is the empowering of God, the Holy Spirit, to know who we are as sons and daughters of the King of Kings. And in that, that we can confess and repent and turn from the cisterns that we have been digging, and that knowing who we are as sons or daughters of the King, we can stand in our world confident, unashamed. We know that we actually have a place in his work of restoration that through us, through he's made us to be, we are actually those that he brings prodigal sons and daughters home. Just as we were brought home. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the source of living water. That you are the source of life. True life. Life to the full. Father, we ask that by your Spirit, you would open our eyes to reveal to us where we are digging our own cisterns and expending ourselves, pouring into them, trying to create or generate life instead of receiving it as a gift from you. Trying to establish our worth or our identity instead of receiving who we are in you as sons or daughters of the King of Kings. Father, we ask that if there are any here who actually 
have not been made children of God, that you would do that work this day, that you would lavishly pour your love upon them. And then that change who they are. Father, we ask that by your spirit, you would empower us to stand in the finished work of the cross as sons and daughters of the King of Kings, that through us, prodigal sons and daughters would be brought home. Amen.